Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I am the beauty on duty this morning. Yeah. Pastor Josh and I were having a conversation last night about 1130, and um, uh, they've been dealing with uh, Emmy's illness this week. She's been very ill, and and Christy's been up, I guess, three whole nights with her, and they had to admit her to the hospital last night. And so uh, Pastor Josh was struggling. He wanted to preach today, and he was planning to. He was so looking forward to it, and I could hear it in his voice. He was struggling uh, because he had a conflict between being a good dad and being a preacher this morning. I think he chose the right thing. I know he would because, you know, he's probably the consummate girl dad, and uh and he, he loves his girls, and Emmy's struggling, and so uh, he's there with her today, and, and uh, you know, we're praying that the Lord would really, really undertake on her behalf. But uh, I had this kind of bubbling in my spirit for the last few weeks, actually. Uh, I've, I've been away myself because of an ankle I broke in, uh, in Africa back in September, but I was really looking forward to sharing this with you at some point. And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you know, I, I know everybody's got a phone, and uh, I, I love Bill Johnson's comment. I wish they'd invent an app that sounds like pages turning, because there's something about a Bible, a physical Bible that becomes a friend, and um, I, I, I still like to preach out of the Bible. I'm thankful for a phone, but this thing has so much in it that I've written in it, and uh, observations and things over the years that I would have forgotten otherwise. But I want to share with you this morning uh, a really precious story in my heart and mind. It's the prodigal son. But I want to approach it this morning from an angle that I think is relevant to the culture at the moment. I have noticed a growth industry in offense. If you're looking for an industry to get part of, that's one that offers a lot of opportunity today because folks are making a study of how to be outraged about everything. But there's no, you can't just have an opinion anymore. You have to be outraged. Your particular issue deserves outrage. Don't you know that? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the violent nature of Americans has just gone through the roof. I mean, you can't go to a football game or a baseball game or a soccer game or whatever game you want to go to hardly without seeing fisticuffs break out in the crowd. It's not that important, any of it that happens there. But folks are just living with outrage. And our media, they hype it. There's a lot of money to be made in your outrage, whether you realize it or not. And in church in families, in businesses. The accuser of the brethren is well at work. He's always there to put somebody down in your mind, especially if they happen to be a Christian. So what I want to bring to you today is a story of three folks that were dealing with outrage. I've never approached it from this point of view before, but it is absolutely the truth. We have a father in this parable. And by the way, the parables that Jesus spoke 
were probably not real-life stories necessarily. They were what the Bible calls a periscope. I think it's a great word for that. Not the Bible calls it. Pardon me, the, the theologians use this term a lot, but it's very descriptive of actually what's happening because what the parables do is explain to us kingdom reality. How many of you know that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are quite different? And if you're totally trafficking in the kingdoms of this age, you are going to be somewhat confused often or blind often to the realities of the kingdom of God. They're two different things. But the Lord desires to bring the kingdoms of God and the kingdoms of his Christ to this, to this world and superimpose over this broken, weird world we've got, kingdom of God reality, which goes on forever and ever as Charity was just singing. So the periscope picture is beautiful because in, in a periscope, you know, think of a submarine, if you will, in a dark a place that, that cannot see out unless it has a vehicle that can pierce into a new arena or a new place. And so the periscope goes up out of that dark place, that isolated place, into a place where it sees with perspective that other kingdom that's outside the water. And so that's the beauty of what we're seeing here. God is giving us a periscope to see how the kingdom of God operates, even though we're totally uh, enclosed in another system altogether. And so when you read the scriptures, it's a different world than what the world is around you. And the Lord's trying to bring us that perspective so that we can literally live kingdom reality in the midst of a broken, sin-filled, broken world. So that's what this is all about today. I, I would suggest to you that outrage will begin to die toward your fellow creations when you understand the prodigal son story. I, I love this story because it's my story too. Growing up in church and rebelling and so forth. And we, we talk about the prodigal son, we really miss the point to a degree. Because in this family, there was some kind of a conflict. In this story, there was a conflict so bad that the younger son had had enough. I suspect that the, the culprit in this story is the older son. And we'll talk about him later. But the issues were such that this boy would be willing to say to his dad, give me the portion of my inheritance that comes to me. And the father Here's this statement differently than you and I hear this statement. I'm not reading the whole scripture here because I know most of you know this. And if you don't, read Matthew or pardon me, Luke 15 uh, this afternoon and maybe meditate on it a little bit. But in this particular context, when this young man says to his father, um, give me the portion of my inheritance, in that culture... What was about to happen when the father passed away is two-thirds of his movable estate would be given to the older son. The younger son would get one-third, or, or if there were other children involved, they would split the other third. 
So it was a situation where when he said that, he was well aware what he would receive. But the father heard something else than his request. Because it was totally out of order for him to ask for that inheritance until his father was dead. So what he was saying was tantamount to saying, I wish you were already dead. What was going on in that family was so toxic that this young man was willing to insult this father in such a way that would have been culturally an abomination. But he did so because he was feeling he had to get out. Why is unknown to us. And as I say, this is a story that Jesus told to illustrate a kingdom reality. There's so many people in this world, folks, and maybe you're sitting here this morning and this is a little bit painful. It's a little bit too close to home because there are some toxic relationships in your family and they're starting to bear fruit in your heart. And if you're not careful, it can drive you from the place of your nurture into a place where you'll fall apart. Believe me, there's a lot of vultures out there ready to pick your bones. God has made something called family. And with all its faults and all the fissures that come through life, family is still God's plan. There are deep, dark forces at work in our earth today, folks, that are openly, repeatedly, it is a foundation stone of their existence that they want to remove the family. They want to decimate the family and create a new world order without the God in the sky being part of it. That also is part of the equation. So I want you to understand that part of the battle is spiritual. That part of the things that go on in family and in life and in close cultural contact, part of those problems are demonic in nature. And so we need to understand it's not just personalities. Remember, one of the main names given to Satan himself is the, is the accuser of the brethren. We're living in a culture right now where it's very popular to accuse Christians of being narrow-minded and fools. And so just be aware of that. That's part of the toxicity that we're dealing with here. But listen to the story. He, Jesus was speaking in front of a tribe of Pharisees and scribes and also tax collectors and sinners. I mean, it was quite a culture. And he says the following to them. Uh, about this young man's situation. It, it starts in verse 11. It says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them, both boys got their inheritance at that time, their, his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted, there comes the name prodigal, which means wasteful, wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. So when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. He joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods which the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. There was an old 
basically messianic, not messianic, but Hebrew uh, parable that says something to the effect that Israel will, re will repent when reduced to the carob pod, which is what they fed the, the swine at that time. And so what God is saying here is often what the rabbis understood is that often it takes a place of total brokenness and total depravity before we see our need. We tell ourselves stories about ourselves and about the way we live our lives and what we allow. In fact, here's the biggest problem I think in culture right now is we have removed the cornerstone of truth. We have taken God out of the center of the equation and we've put other things in there, mainly ourselves. And so without the foundation stones, the building will crumble. And that's what we see happening in the breaking down in virtually every aspect of society because it's no longer culturally correct to say that there is one kind of truth. It's absolute. Yes, and there is an author of that truth, and his name is God. Yes. And until we understand that and put him back in his rightful place, nothing else makes a lot of sense. Wow. So with that, with that as an understanding, I think we move through this little parable here. And uh, he, he gets to the place where all the things that he, he thought would be a, a, a something fun and something meaningful, and he was willing to invest his own inheritance in those things, you know, it, it basically fell apart. And that the seeking first of the kingdom of God is uh, something Jesus recommended. And that was the foundation of all prosperity. But he failed to see that. And he finds himself in this place that's just awful. It couldn't be any worse for a young Jewish nobleman who had been raised in a significant family, had lots of rights and lots of privileges in that particular culture. Now, this young man has relegated himself out of need and desperation to feeding swine which were unclean to any Jew. And not only that... He became so desperate that he began to lust after the food that he was feeding the pigs. But he was so decimated and so despised that no one gave him anything. Can you imagine? And this young guy, he comes to the end of himself. And may I suggest that any road that leads you to the end of yourself may be your rebirth. There's something about self-determination that destroys us. The author of our salvation is also the author of our life. He creates you with a destiny in mind. We're not just taking up space for three score and ten or whatever else the Lord might give us on top of that. We're here to magnify our Savior. We're here to perpetrate the culture of heaven toward earth. This man, this young man could not understand what he had given up for nothing. It evaporated on him, and he comes to himself. Thank God. Verse 17, then he, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? A lot of people come to that spot, but don't do anything about it. 
Can you imagine how long could he have survived in that situation? Not very long. Illness would have come. Depravity of some sort would have come. But he, he knows where he needs to go. He heads back home. He said, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came. When we come to that spot of, of despising what we've become, we may be seeing ourselves pretty accurately. When you juxtapose the holiness of God, which is incredible, against my life, the thoughts that find a home in my head, the actions that I commit out of selfishness and hatred and so forth and so on to justify myself. When we juxtapose those things, we've got to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Made in the image of God, carrying the DNA of his father, and might I add, all humankind carries the DNA of their heavenly father. How we have abused, confused, and corrupted his image. And when we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, we've got to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Religion tells us, well, I'm worthy because I don't do what you do. But religion is no avenue to fellowship with God. Confession of sin is the beginning of restitution with God. And when I see that I have sinned, it's not time for me to redefine truth. It's not time for me to redefine love. If God said it, that settles it. And I must acknowledge his truth is superior to my truth or any permutation of truth anybody else explains. Everybody will answer their truth one day to the truth. And the quicker we understand that and apply it practically, the quicker we get out of the pig pen and back to our home. This boy had a fence. Maybe it was the father that had offended him. I don't know. Or maybe it was his older brother that had offended him and the father didn't take care of business. I don't know because it's a parable. But I think it's comparable to a lot of the things that bind us. That drive us from the place where God would have us to be. But this boy came home. You know, Matthew 18 is very, very important to rectifying the things that cause us to be outraged and unforgiving and so forth and so on. Here's, here's, a, here's a key. Matthew 18 says, if you are offended, 
you who are offended. You go to the person that offended you. And I think that's huge because it says to that person, you're important to me. You're important to me. And there's something that's caused a rift between us. And it's not okay with me to leave it that way. It's not okay with me to justify my position in it. You are worth more to me than me proving I was right. If you're offended at somebody, you dare not wait for them to come to you. And that's the old saw that I hear all the time. Well, they, they know what they did. Let me just tell you, a lot of people don't know what they did. They're living on scot-free. And you're dragging around this boat anchor with you, wondering why life is so unkind to you. Why is life so heavy for me? Well, drop your anchor and you might find freedom. Go to the person crying out loud. Do what's right whether you want to or not or whether you think it's going to work or not. Try God's plan. And what do you go, with, go to them with? The Bible says that you might find your brother, that you might restore basically that relationship to brotherhood or sisterhood or friendship Fellowship, the thing that the enemy has been trying to destroy by being the accuser of that brethren, brother, sister, whoever they might be. Somebody here is really uncomfortable right now. But can I tell you one of my favorite things that I've, I've gotten to participate in in over 40 some odd years of pastoring has been seeing people. I couldn't get along, embrace one another after something like this and find their brother again. Because I'll tell you, the anxiety that is pumped into you and the fear and the hatred that's pumped into you in one of these scenarios is there because there's value that the enemy does not want you to ever experience again. He wants to rip you off. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He never wakes up on the right side of the bed. He never has a benevolent thought toward you. And the culture of the hour is pumping us with this kind of nonsense and tearing families and organizations and culture apart. You and I are to be peacemakers. They shall see the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is about making peace, not compromises, not compromising morality, but making peace, illustrating a peaceful life, if you will. Now, some really important things happen here. This boy is making an effort personally. He's the one moving. He's the prime mover, and you always are. Consider yourself to be 100% responsible for this process. And he comes to his father. Can you imagine when he left, he was well-groomed and well-fed and well-loved, and he comes home 
looking like something the dog dragged in. He smells bad because he's been basically serving hogs. He's wearing the culture that he's part of. And for a Jew to be unclean makes him an untouchable. These scribes and Pharisees were cringing right now because they had a similar story. If you'd been going to the temple, you would have heard this story before because they had their own version. And when this boy came back home, he served forever as an underling and despised and defined by his failures. And that's the way it would be. But Jesus has another chapter to this. Now listen to what he says. He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Man. It gets me every time. I'm sorry. His father saw him. He had to be looking. He had to be, in effect, out on the road. How could you recognize somebody unless you're out looking? On the road, as this boy is a great way off, he sees the walk. He sees this person. Didn't look like what left him, but there's something there. And when he recognized him, his anger doesn't boil over. He runs to him. And in that culture, an elder never ran to anybody. Everybody came to them. Can you see the attitude I'm talking about? God's not waiting for you to be perfect. He's waiting for you to be present. He's waiting for you to to come toward him. And I, I've, I've seen it even in these reconciliatory uh, meetings or, or, or scenarios that I've been able to be part of before, how when somebody lowers themselves, rather than come all puffed up with their pride and their arrogance and their reasons, it's amazing how it's magnetic. People want. They're built inside, way down deep in their, in their psyche to want restoration, love, and companionship. It's not worth it to punish yourself by not allowing the process to happen. The father runs to him again. In the culture, it would be anathema for you to embrace somebody who was unclean. This father had been wounded. His heart was broken or he wouldn't be out looking. He's come to seek and save that which is lost. That's his motivation. He's not here to beat you up. He's here to sweep you up. He went looking 
he fell on his neck and he kissed him. The boy starts his speech. He's been rehearsing it. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he's right. Father didn't refute that. He just covered it with love. He turned to the servants and said, bring the robe. And the implication in the Hebrew is, you know the one that I mean. The most valuable item in a home of that time would have been this garment. It was costly to make. It was reserved only for noblemen that would come to visit or the father himself. The most valuable thing that they owned. That very same robe. Couldn't just take it to the cleaners later. Might ruin it putting it on this boy. Such was the cost to retrieve what mattered most. I, I never will forget, as long as I live, something that happened back in the day. I went to a, a conference um, down in New Orleans, and uh, the great old African-American preacher, some of you have seen this illustration before, E.B. Hill was his name. He was doing a sermon on salvation that night, and he, he said, you know, my sin was as black as this microphone right here. I was despicable. He said, and the Lord came, and he covered me, the robes of his righteousness, That he gave it a big hug. And he said, you know, inside, this is my condition. But now, this is my position. Uh, don't ever forget that. I can't remember another thing that man said that night. In the Superdome there in New Orleans. But I, I will never forget that. That great man of God. Folks, that's simply the truth. When you start thinking you're really something, oh, I'm a, I'm a strong believer. I'm so anointed. I'm so spiritual. I don't even hardly touch the ground when I walk. <laughs> Let me just remind you. <laughs> that's in the process of changing Hopefully, we call that sanctification. You don't do that before this. You can't do that without this. The robe of righteousness puts you in right standing. It puts you in your role as redeemed, covered, forgiven, and in the process of being restored. But that wasn't all. He said, also, where are we here? Let me find it again. Here we go. Verse 22, take the robe and put it on him. 
God is the one that puts it on you. You can't put it on yourself. You'll never get good enough to erase the sin that you've already created. Are you there? Somebody has to put it on you. You have to submit yourself to that person and acknowledge that you need it. That's why we confess our sins, because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can't even see it anymore. Now that's, when you walk up, that's who you are. I'm forgiven. I'm covered. I'm accepted in the beloved. But that's not it. That's not all. Because if that's all there was, we wouldn't fully reflect our Father. Bring him the ring. The ring was the gold express, uh, Federal Express, not a Federal Express, American Express. It's the one that said you can conduct business in the family name. But because they didn't sign their name on a credit card receipt back in the day, they took off their ring, which had a crest of the family on it, and pressed it into the hot wax of an agreement at the bottom of a document. And that said, the family stands behind this transaction. That's why I love to have new believers pray for me. Because they believe. Something that happens to a new Christian, suddenly they're being transformed by, by the renewing of their mind. Now they, now they see this, they feel this. It's so different. They're all about it. And they're willing to press that ring in the wax all the time. Well, that's what God wants for us. We should never outgrow that. We should wear that ring with pride. And we should use it as often as possible. This must be for the next hour crowd. That's all I can figure. And then they said, and not only that, get some sandals on this boy's feet right now. Because in that culture... Slaves never wore footwear. They weren't allowed. So for a young nobleman to be barefoot was not okay. Bring the sandals for his feet. I want him to walk in his role. I want him to be seen with the family's robe the family's ring, and I want sandals on his feet. Basically, is a symbol of walking in the Spirit. I want you to walk this thing out, son. I don't want you to be dragging around, well, I'm just a second-class citizen of the kingdom. You know, they just, God just puts up with me. That sounds like humility, but that's just basically stupidity. You either believe this, or you live a life that's kind of quasi-Christian. This is powerful stuff. And then the father says, bring the fatted calf. That's, that's like, you know, New Year's and Christmas and everything wrapped into one. Birthday party, the whole nine yards. This is a celebration. And the only thing we're celebrating here is my son who was lost is now found. 
Heaven rejoices over every soul that repents. Can you imagine every time somebody comes to an altar, every time somebody bows their heart before God and says, I'm not worthy to be called your son, only forgive me, receive me, accept me, God. Heaven has a party. That's just bizarre to think about. God's so removed from our, from our picture, but that's why we need a periscope. We need to understand that this is big business to God. He never gets tired of this. It only breaks his heart when he has to stand out on the road looking for too long. And maybe the boy never comes home. That's the biggest tragedy in human history. But then again, there still remains some problems at home. Because the older son is out working in the field, and verse 25 tells us, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. Everybody was excited for the father and for the son to be reunited. It, was, it had been a, a wound for too long. Man, they're dancing. They're having a party. And so the older brother hears this. Older brothers just don't seem to like people being excited. I don't know why that is. He said to him, the servant told him, he said, hey, your brother has come. And because he, that is the father, has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. Would not go in. I, you know, I've heard this many times as a, as a pastor over the years. Somebody didn't say hi. Or you came with your new, your new outfit on, and uh, they said, that's a nice shirt. What does that go with? You got offended. Got hurt. Didn't like what the preacher was preaching. There's somebody in that church that's a hypocrite. They wouldn't go in. They isolate themselves. Instead of embracing the brother, they embrace their pain or their opinion or their fear or their pride. Haughty spirits go before a fall. And the older brother would not go in. He remains the only one in this periscope the only view we have of a kingdom of God portrayal because he's got too much of a religious spirit to get over himself. I'd like to say to you today that Jesus left the question mark for us because he well knew as he was staring at the scribes and the Pharisees and all the people that were listening to this sermon that were bristling with anger. That their well-entrenched parable had been perverted by a story of love. Religion can be the cruelest elder brother that you've ever met. When I say religion, I'm talking about people that love restrictions more than they love what God created in his image. 
Well, God's holy, absolutely holy. Those restrictions mean something. They're portrayals of what holiness would look like, but we can't get there on our own. We can't. And when the Spirit of God comes on us, we can come home. When the Spirit of God begins to lead us and guide us and direct us in His ways, we're home. We're walking in our sandals. We're wearing our robe, and we're doing business with our ring. I want you to know this morning that outrage is not a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, it's right to be outraged about certain things. It's right to stand up for truth. It's right to not be afraid to speak the truth in love. In fact, it's sin not to. But I will say to you today that some of us have picked up more from our culture. Our view of life is not being seen through the periscope into the kingdom of God. You know, I'd like to ask a question this morning. How many of you would stand with me right now and say, I have been that boy. I have been that prodigal son. And I've been able to find my father again. Would you stand with me if you could say that personally today? I'd gone my own way. I had, I had done the wrong. And I saw the error of my ways. And I want you to look around this morning and see that you are surrounded by a whole lot of people just like you. Isn't it great to know that the cumulative number of our sins and our shortcomings and our failures, our obstinance, our brokenness was not enough to keep God's love from us. If you're not able to stand today or you don't feel like you've ever done anything worthy of being rejected, then I'm sorry. You're deceived. But if you're sitting there today, if you're online today and you say, I can't say that I've ever met the Father on the road like these, today would be the day to say, Father, I have sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your child. And you're going to find that he's been out on the road looking for you. And the act of contrition that you bring before him today is enough for him to embrace you, to bestow you with his righteousness, his ring of authority, and the sandals of your sonship. Let's all pray this together today, shall we? Father God, I thank you for coming toward me with a mind to seek and to save me. Today I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you to restore me to fellowship and full sonship because of your goodness and because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I receive that sacrifice today. I thank you that you are my Savior. Give me the power and the authority to serve you forever. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. Amen.
You know, folks, as this Christmas season approaches, many of us will be in gatherings where there's some elder brothers, some prodigal brothers, and some longing parents. Wouldn't it be great? We sang, sang it earlier. I forget the exact words that Charity had. But something about us magnifying him. When you think about your witness, just think about how it is that how you're living is, uh, is properly portraying the one we say we love. This Christmas, you could become instruments of his peace. This Christmas, you could celebrate in the most appropriate way possible the one that came and lived and died and rose again. God bless you and Merry Christmas to everyone. Take care.